Hello, good evening, good afternoon, good morning. Uh, welcome to Searching for the Question Live. My name is uh, David Orban, and I want to really thank you uh, for following the show. Uh, before we start, I want to remind you that we are streaming uh, on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Twitch, uh, on LinkedIn, on every possible platform. And since we are live, uh, your questions and comments are always welcome. Uh, of course, you can also subscribe uh, to the YouTube channel. You can like uh, the Facebook page and so on. Uh, we also have a Discord community on uh, davidorban.com slash Discord, where you are welcome uh, to join. And if you find a show uh, valuable uh, and you want to become a supporter, a sponsor, or a benefactor on Patreon, you can do so on patreon.com slash davidorban. Today's guest is uh, Francesca uh, Cavallo. I met uh, Francesca in Milan in uh, uh, 2011, 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, since then, she has had a really wonderful meteoric uh, rise uh, in the field of publishing. Her um, book, uh, Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls, uh, has become uh, uh, an incredible uh, bestseller all over the world. Um, published uh, uh, in 47 languages uh, since it came out. Um, uh, I uh, enjoyed it greatly and gifted it uh, to many uh, families uh, with budding uh, rebel girls, and uh, I absolutely recommend it. Uh, and um, with her publishing uh, company, under cats, uh, she just uh, launched a new project uh, entitled Paralympians. And uh, we are here uh, with Francesca today uh, to talk about uh, her uh, experience um, with uh, Rebel Goals, of course, but also uh, to talk about her latest project, Paralympians. Welcome, Francesca, to Searching for the Question Live. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. So uh, I always like uh, uh, to start uh, asking my guests uh, about uh, their trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you were uh, born and raised in Italy, uh, yes. but then uh, um, decided to, to go out and, and uh, left for a few years and then and then came back. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you are now uh, in in Italy again. Yeah. So tell me, tell me about this uh, this circle uh, uh, of uh, your past uh, ten years. Yeah, sure. Well, I I grew up in southern Italy in a small town in the province of Taranto in the Puglia region, and my town is called Lizzano. And um, I left for college. I went to uh, Milan to attend university there. And then uh, while I was there, I, um, I started, I, I fell in love with a journalist who was working on um, an, an iPad magazine for, for children called uh, Timbuktu. And I decided to work on it with her. 
And uh, little by little, we learned that the project that we were putting together could be called a startup. It was the beginning of the startup movement in Italy, and we decided to try and raise money from angel investors to turn that project into a company. So what we did was uh, we started attending all sorts of startup competitions, which is where I think we met the first time. You Before I joined the live, you were looking for a picture of us back in 2011. And uh, it would have been in one of these contexts of these startup uh, environments. And um, one of the competitions that we won was called Mind the Bridge. Uh, and the goal of this organization that is still uh, active today is to uh, connect Italian entrepreneurs with uh, Silicon Valley. And uh, we went to San Francisco for a one-month uh, business gym, and uh, we were able to raise a first angel round uh, there, and we, we took the company off the ground. But for the first few years, we, we were not profitable. We, we, we didn't make any money. So we kept on looking for opportunities to monetize the content that we were creating, which was mobile apps at the beginning. Then we went to a phase where we tried to make um, cartoons for kids. So we attended a few conferences to try and see if a few con show concepts that we had could be monetized uh, and sold to networks. And then I even designed a playground that we sold to the NFL. So we went through a lot of different iterations uh, with, with the company until we landed on this idea of a book called Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls. And when the book came about, we had basically lost hope on the possibility of raising money from traditional investors. And we had started looking to crowdfunding as a way to finance uh, the, the growth of the company. So we launched a campaign on, on Kickstarter um, and uh, with the goal of raising $40,000. And at the end of the first month, we had raised almost $700,000 from 13,000 backers coming from 75 countries. And that was the, you know, the beginning of the growth of, uh, of Timbuktu, uh, of the company that I um, left uh, that I basically, uh, together with my co-founder there, Elena Fabili, we, um, while I was there, I took the company from zero to $14 million a year in revenues. And then I left the company at the beginning of 2019. And shortly thereafter, I started my second company, Undercats, which is the company where I, where I am now. And, and uh, uh, we want to concentrate on the latest project, uh, I don't know how you took it, but when I realized it, I laughed and I could afford to laugh because I wasn't involved. Mm -hmm. But for me, one of the most amazing signs of the incredible success of uh, this book was the imitations. Mm -hmm. That it became uh, a format and and I don't know whether there are half a dozen or several dozen, but I myself saw um, in my travels, because I always go to bookstores, and I could recognize that someone took the pains of copying the book in terms of 
doing it for boys rather than girls or or rather than midnight stories they were other kinds of stories but evidently they were inspired by uh your your success to uh, to do something something similar um it, it is it is of course a story uh, uh, that you tell of persistence and resilience and it is also a story that suffers from survivor bias because mm -hmm. you could have given up there's yeah. nothing that uh guaranteed that the last attempt after um trying and failing to find an app and the monetization and a digital this and a digital that that this traditional book project could have been and would have been and indeed it became the foundation of 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 this kind of runaway publishing uh, a, a success so in that sense i'm always a little angry when when uh, um people who are wonderfully successful like you are then put on a pedestal and everyone has to look at them and say oh that is what need what you need to do but yeah. what is it right it it cannot be as it is an example because un unfortunately there are a lot of people who are persistent and and insistent and are resilient like you but they end up not finding the lucky idea that gives them the success that they deserve they don't deserve it less than you do absolutely absolutely in fact in my opinion what makes me successful is not the fact that uh the campaign raised so much money that the book sold so many copies what made me successful is that I try to build a career around meaning. So whatever work I have been doing over the past 10 years, it's been work that's been meaningful to me. So that is, in, in, in my view of myself, that is what makes me successful. Because otherwise, for example, now we are five days away from the end of the campaign for Paralympians, right? This is my fifth Kickstarter campaign. And I would have to tell you, well, this campaign, you know, it didn't go as well as the campaign for Rebel Girls because that one raised almost $700,000. With this one, we raised $20,000. But it doesn't compare because it's two different projects. And what compares in my personal experience is the fact that I believe in this project as much as I believed in Good Night Stories for Rebel Girls. Then some of the things you do in life will meet the interest, the dreams, the will intercept something that is bigger and uh, that sometimes you were lucky enough to touch uh, a lot of people. But some other times you touch less people. But what matters in building a career is that you're doing work that is meaningful to you, where you feel like you have a purpose. And that is something that up to a point you can control. There are lots of things that you cannot control. To, to, to one observation and one question around that. The observation is that uh, for sure, and I don't know the details, 99% uh, of the people who learned that you were leaving 
the cozy infrastructure uh, of uh, the level of success that the previous project achieved and I'm saying cozy, but of course it was crazy rather than cozy because managing that kind of growth uh, was was evidently uh, something that that um, it it is it is a miracle that you you, you didn't go crazy. Um, but when you left, people told you, "How is that possible? Why are you doing it?" And the reason why you are doing it or you did it at the time is because. Uh, you had to keep progressing in the journey of meaning and of um, uh, purpose that you just started. You couldn't stop. Yeah. Staying there would have represented stopping at practically one of the first steps of that journey that you have just uh, you have just started. Now the. Uh, the 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 question uh, is uh, uh, about the 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 project and and uh, how do you um, start uh, believing in yourself enough to understand that it is not even that you can afford to pursue your purpose and to build on meaning. Mm. But that every alternative is impossible. That is the only thing you can do. Because too many people are in the situation where they convince themselves that they cannot do it. You proved that it is possible. And you are saying, that is the lesson. The lesson is not the success. The lesson is the courage and the ability to understand that pursuing meaning and purpose is possible. So how is that um, within the reach of other people who today mm -hmm. believe it is not within their reach? I think that in a way, I was uh, I had the privilege of feeling that I mean I don't come from a from a, a rich family. I come from a middle class family, but still, I knew that if I ever you know completely had run out of money, I could go back and live at my parents. So I wouldn't end up in a street, which is a privilege in and of itself. And it is something that, if I'm honest, helped me. Now, the, the thing is that there are many more people who could think this. And uh, start, they are, I, I, I have a feeling that there are lots of people that are afraid to try something in case they fail at it. And one thing that I learned, because I always did a lot of projects, is that failure is much less public than we imagine. Because success is very public, right? When you create something and it is very successful, lots of people notice. That is sort of the definition of success. Everyone has their eyes on you because you are doing something that attracts people's attention. When you fail, normally it's because you fail at attracting people's attention. For me, <laughs> this notion is very liberating because 
when you launch a project and you fail at it, very few people know this. And that is sort of the point. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't manage to attract people's attention. So that is why people uh, believe that, for example, lots of people that don't follow me closely believe that Goodness Stories for Apple Girls was uh, an overnight success because they didn't see, they were, you know, all my other attempts did not catch their eye. So this is a very useful thought, I think, for people to be less afraid of failure because success is very public. Failure is not, unless you end up in jail for something super, like, bad, then, you know, your failure will attract attention. But in terms of, like, launching a project, launching a book, launching, people won't remember because people are caught up enough in their own life to take, you know, notes with your failures. So this for me is always a very liberating thought. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, what you said about uh, having the safety net of a family that can support you uh, when uh, you are, uh, or if, if it turned out as it didn't, that, that you would end up uh, needing that kind of support is, uh, is, is a beautiful uh, Italian reality. Uh, and and I don't know whether a hundred percent of the people who try something could go back to their families, but close to a hundred percent. And and I wish other countries had that kind of very strong uh, uh, family links uh, because in many countries, um, for example, in in uh, in England, um, if you leave later than sixteen or seventeen, you are frowned upon uh, in the family. And uh, I don't know today, but um, a few years ago, uh, if you had to go back, uh, it was also very, very badly uh, seen. And in America, uh, it is actually a, 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 like a common trope uh, of the uh, uh, 20-something that is still living in the basement of uh, his mother. And, uh, and, and he must be, as a consequence, uh, uh, someone who who uh, is, is in a bad space. Uh, and, and another thing that comes into my mind is um, how wonderful is going to be when we restructure society uh, in a way that whether we call it universal basic income or whatever else we want to call it, people will have what you call the privilege rather than of the genetic lottery because you were born the daughter of a middle uh, class family they will have it because they are human beings and yeah. they deserve the chance of pursuing meaning and purpose uh regardless of uh, wh wh who were their parents yeah absolutely um so let's talk about the current project Paralympians, um, why did you uh, launch it? Why do you think this is aligned with your path of exploration of your meaning and of your purpose? Sure. Well, you know, when I started Undercats, my main goal was I asked myself, okay, I'm starting my second company. I want to go beyond the work that I did in Rebel Girls. So how can I do that? And part of what I realized is that 
um, there was a lot of need, not just for female empowerment in children's media, but for more for books and cartoons and movies that would be radically inclusive and radically diverse. So Rebel Girls started <clears throat> a very big trend and now there are a lot more books that feature female characters. But there is still a complete lack of uh, characters, uh, LGBTQ uh, characters, characters with disabilities, characters of color in, uh, in children's books and in children's television. Now, what happens is that we are somewhat biased to, to think that the children's books that we have now are neutral because they are what we know. And we think that the absence of uh, gay people, of transgender people, of people of color, of people with disabilities from these books is neutral. But it isn't because it, it's actually conveying to kids the notion that in order to be a normal human being, you have to be heterosexual, you have to be uh, able-bodied, you have to be white, which is a very biased notion and not at all an accurate representation of the world. So what I want, what I want, what, what I want to do with Andercats is I want to intercept this need for change that is part of so many millions of families around the world. Because up until a few years ago, uh, to be a good parent, you had to sort of uh, take care of your kids. You had to give them healthy food. You had to make sure that they had a good education. And, uh, and that was it. It was a very private relationship and private responsibility between a parent and a child and their child. This changed with the Me Too movement. It changed with Fridays for Future. It changed with Black Lives Matter because an increasing number of families around the world are starting to see parenting as the most consequential political act that they will do in their entire life. So they are starting to see the opportunity of parenting a child as the opportunity to give birth to a new world. And together with their kids, they don't want to look at the past for inspiration. So to stories that are set in castles, that are about princesses and, and chevaliers. They want to look together with their family at the future that they want to build together. And these are this is the kind of families for whom I want to create content with, with, with Undercats. So the point is, the mission of Undercats is to radically uh, increase diversity in children's media and to inspire families around the world to take action for equality. To do this, we are going to publish stories about people with disabilities, about people of color, and about LGBT people. Now, the if you think about, particularly about picture box, it is incredibly rare to find people with disabilities. There are a few books, like the, the most famous one is Wonder by R.J. Palacio, which is a fantastic book, but it's not illustrated. And it's a book about a child with a disability. But in terms of illustrated books, the most that you find about the, the representation of disability is the group illustration with the Asian child, the black child, and the child in a hospital wheelchair. That is all that you find. And these characters are always sidekicks. They are never the protagonist of the story. So what I wanted to do with these books 
is I wanted to offer representation to some of the biggest champions of our time in the Paralympic Games, and I wanted them to be the protagonists of an entire picture book where we could start creating a blueprint for the representation of people with disabilities in picture books that is not a pitiful representation where they don't look like these Charles Dickens orphans, where they look like the champions that they are, and they are cool, and they are desirable, and they are doing things that are admirable. So that is part of the, the you know, it, it's all part of this pro cultural project of this mission of the company of shedding light on areas that are now completely in the dark when it comes to children's publishing. So there is a wonderful uh, uh, video uh, about the project that I would like to show. It's just a couple of minutes. Let's uh, look at it and then we will continue uh, the conversation. Fastest Woman on Earth tells the unbelievable story of Russian-American wheelchair racer and 17-time Paralympic medalist Tatiana McFadden. Back the campaign and you will receive this book by the end of August in time to see Tatiana compete at the Paralympics. The Long Jump will take you from Burundi to France to discover the story of record-breaking sprinter and long jumper Jean-Baptiste Allais. On Guard will inspire you through the story of Italian fencer Beatrice Vio, who became a world champion and a fashion icon. With The Archer, you'll learn about the life of one of the greatest Iranian athletes of all times, Taekwondo champion turned Paralympic archer Zahra Namazi. When I found the stories of these athletes, I could not believe they had not been made into children's books yet. These aren't just stories about incredible champions. They are stories about adoption, about loss, about resilience, and about the extraordinary power that's unlocked when we are given equal opportunities. Right now, the representation of non-conforming bodies is largely absent from children's illustration. With this book series, we want to fill that gap, and we want to start creating a blueprint for the representation of people with disabilities in children's books. It's time we start giving all children the opportunity to see themselves in the stories they read. It's time we start giving all children the opportunity to see the world in all of its glorious diversity. If we do that, I believe we have the chance to give birth to the cultural revolution we need to build a society where equality truly matters. So come on this journey with us. Back this campaign if you can. Undercats is a small, fiercely independent company and we need your help to publish these books. We completed the first one, Fastest Woman on Earth, and that will be out in August, just in time for the Paralympic Games. Help us publish the other three books. 
I promise that these stories and the stunning illustrations accompanying them will take your breath away. Thank you. Wonderful video. Um, I also want to say hello to Amjad, uh, who says, Assalamu alaikum. And uh, um, Amjad, if you have a question or a remark, uh, please, you're welcome uh, to uh, participate actively in, in our show. Um, the idea is powerful. And uh, I want to be one of the first to congratulate you uh, on uh, the campaign uh, actually having reached its goal. Yeah, because thank you. It happened uh, just uh, a few hours ago. Yes. And, uh, and it is uh, wonderful. Congratulations. So now uh, uh, the pledges uh, are going to be collected and the books uh, are going to happen as they deserve uh, to happen. Um, and you are talking about um, a generational project here because influencing families, how they raise their children, and then those children having been raised that way, shaping a world of inclusion and of opportunity will take 20 years, 30 years. Yeah. So you are really uh, laying down a path that is ambitious, world-changing, and it is going to take time. So uh, how uh, do you feel about um the responsibility and 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 really the ambition of of uh, what you are uh what you are doing you know i think if you're starting a company in 2020 or 2021 i think we what we realized is that if you are an entrepreneur and uh, you want to be an entrepreneur you have to sort of plan ahead and you have to dream of having an impact, a positive impact in the future, not just to make some fast money and maybe, I don't know, destroy the environment or destroy your employees or just to make some quick money and go home. In my opinion, despite the fact that those kind of entrepreneurs are still vastly celebrated in the world of uh, business, I don't think that that is really the most interesting way of being an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur, in, in my view, is being a person who thinks that through their work and through the work of a team of people uh, that they put together, they can influence a little piece of the history of the world. So that is a little bit what I, I dream of doing by simply being present to the challenges that come to me every day, to the challenges that I go to work every day, by being present to my to, to our readers, by being present to my employees, and by being present to myself. Because one of the things that I wanted to do when I started thinking, I want to build a sustainable company, I asked myself, what does that mean? And being a sustainable company doesn't just mean that we use uh, FSC certified paper for our books. 
It doesn't just mean that we try to print our box as close as possible to our distribution center uh, to minimize the carbon footprint of transportation, but it also means what makes this company sustainable for me as a founder? What, does, what makes this company sustainable for my employees? What if the company will become big? If we manage to open a big office building in a city, what makes the company sustainable for that city? So these are the kind of questions that we need to ask as entrepreneurs in 2021. And I want to ask myself those big questions because that is in, for, for, for the way that I am built, for the way that I am, what makes my professional life worth living. Um, is Undercats a benefit corporation? We are not yet because we don't have the resources to go through the process yet. <laughs> well, uh, because because what you are describing is exactly corresponding to uh, uh, that. And you can do two different things. Uh, one is to adopt uh, these principles uh, that you described in your charter of incorporation. And then the effort and the cost of getting certified by B-Labs or whatever other organization uh, giving out uh, the, you know, the, the decals, uh, digital decals as it were today, uh, is completely separate. You can walk the walk and then maybe it is up to them to bang on your door and to please let uh, undercats be certified because you are embodying those mm -hmm. principles so, so clearly. And you are describing yeah. this all-encompassing mindset, which I totally agree. Uh, my my friend, uh, Eric Ezekieli, who is one of the leaders of the, uh, the Benefit Corporation movement, um, says that uh, it is an idea uh, that is going to be soon so evident that if any entrepreneur or corporate leader behaves differently, the question will be, why? Why do you want to harm your suppliers? Why do you want to break your employees? Why do you want to destroy the environment, right? And, and uh, any activity that goes against those um, uh, stakeholders is going to be um, uh, thrown upon mm -hmm. and uh, will become uh, uncompetitive and, as you said, at the end, unsustainable and it will just uh, evolutionarily uh, die out. Yeah, Very I mean, if you want to work in a company like that, there is no need to start another one. There's plenty of companies you can go work for. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Um um I um just backed uh, the project mm -hmm. uh, this morning um and uh, um I am very much looking forward to uh, uh receiving the books uh, in a in a couple of months uh, and I will be also very happy to keep uh, spreading uh, them uh, together with uh, the other projects that will embody uh, similar uh, inclusivity. Uh, for me, uh, there is also uh, an angle, and and uh, I want to uh, take some 
time of our being together to be a little bit provocative towards you and 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 without any uh preparation throw you into uh this set of ideas uh, mm -hmm. around uh, what to me means to be inclusive and why the broadest possible interpretation of ways of living is so crucially important today. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a card-carrying transhumanist, and transhumanism is uh, a philosophical movement that uh, defines human beings by their desire and ability to overcome their limitations, to go beyond what is a given definition of being human so that when they redefine that, we open up new opportunities for any individual or a group of individuals to define how to fulfill their meaning and their purpose. And uh, one of the reasons why, uh, even though uh, this uh, philosophical uh, mindset has a long history and a prestigious set of roots, uh, the reason why it matters today, as much as it does, is because we are um, broadening the possibilities, uh, societies that couldn't afford to be inclusive uh, towards uh, other ways of being because they were too fragile, they were too insecure in what they themselves were and what they themselves represented have become rich not only from a material point of view but they have become also more assured in understanding that they are not threatened they are not attacked by alternatives uh, and as a consequence they started to structure themselves. And this structuring is, in my opinion, only at the beginning. Mm -hmm. The types of freedoms that we are acquiring are really radical. Uh, freedoms that we have barely started to recognize. Cognitive freedoms, uh, freedoms around our genetic makeup, uh, the very functions of our bodies. And it is sometimes almost impossible to talk about these freedoms. Um, as a matter of fact, many of these freedoms are criminalized. Uh, in most countries, uh, it is um, prohibited to use drugs that alter your um, cognitive functions, except some. So, for example, if you want to use alcohol, you can alter your cognitive functions. But if you want to use marijuana, in most of the uh, jurisdictions, it is a criminal offense. Except when it isn't. Because you go to sleep, and then the day after, Marijuana is legal, which is, of course, ridiculous because it just shows you 
that our understanding of what it is to be normal can change and we can mm -hmm. become more inclusive. This has been the case, for example, uh, for uh, uh, homosexual uh, people, gays and, and, and lesbians, who were and still are discriminated against in many parts of the world, maybe in most parts of the world. And only in the past few decades, there has been a progressive understanding of, of uh, the rights and the absolutely normal desire to be included in society by, by them as well. So the question is, for someone who is a self-described radical in promoting um, diversity and inclusion, how do you establish what can society tolerate in a given moment? Is it compromising to your principle of radical inclusion to set yourself a limit? Or can it be counter to the sustainability of your initiatives? to push society beyond what at a given point it can understand and embrace? That's a, an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure that I necessarily believe that there is a right answer. I can tell you how I live this uh, responsibility or you know how I live my daily work in this. I, I don't compromise on, um, on what I believe is the, you know, the right way of uh, being inclusive and di diverse. I don't compromise on that in order to meet the taste of the, of the audience. Because I always believe what, uh, I always remember what Bertolt Brecht the German, uh, uh, you know, author and uh, theater maker used to say that an artist should never be afraid to precede uh, his or her or their audience uh, by miles. That that is sort of the function of art in society, to precede your audience, not to follow them, not to precede them by centimeters, but to precede them by miles. Because by doing that, you can sort of set a direction. It is not a matter, I do not expect, and this is the reason why I work with children, as you were rightly saying before, I will, I mean, probably, I don't, I'm not sure, but probably we may start seeing the, you know, the, the, the impact of my work in 20 years from now. And I'm okay with that because what I am trying to do through, my, through these stories is to set a direction, to say we should go that way. And now maybe we're not already all bought in in the entirety of, of the ideas that I'm presenting. But also the other thing is that I don't talk about theoretical ideas. And that is something that helps because even though I am radical in my beliefs, 
I present my beliefs through stories. And stories are never too radical because by distillating your ideas into stories, you make those ideas more digestible because especially when they are stories of you, real human beings, I mean, a real human being can never be particularly radical because it's already existent. It's in the now. So my function in society is to be able, first of all, to see that story and then to think, hmm, I think this story belongs to a children's book. I can't believe that anyone has made this story into a children's book. And, and to, by doing that, I am sort of creating a bridge between where we are the existence of that person and the direction that we're going toward. So, you know, it is, uh, it, it is stories that make these ideas more digestible. If I, were write, I, if I were an intellectual and I were writing theories about gender or theories about race or theories about disability, it would probably be a little bit different. But in my case, I distill everything through stories. And... In stories, you make these ideas very simple because you're just telling people, look, look, this person exists. Look at how beautiful the things that this person did in their life. Uh, you know, look at how inspiring this is. And by doing this, you're, you're planting these seeds and people don't even realize what you're doing because they are just enjoying a beautiful story. You are, you are creating a new uh, narrative. Yes, around which we can uh, rethink how society should function. You yeah. are creating a new mythology that uh, replaces uh, those that we can actually realize serve the purpose and they stopped being of any help uh, for children or adults uh, today, whether Hansel and Gretel or the princesses and the knights and, and dragons. Uh, in the Middle Ages, they uh, would uh, prepare one to live in uh, a society that, that needed that kind of narrative. But the society of the future deserves uh, the ambition and the creativity that, that you are providing. Mm -hmm. So uh, the last provocation for today, uh, I wish for uh, Paralympians the level of success that will guarantee copycats and, uh, and, uh, and for a new wave of these kinds of books uh, to be in uh, bookstores worldwide. You know, one of the things, one of the most beautiful things that I've been told about Goodnight Stories for Apple Girls came from independent bookstores. And uh, some of the owners of these stores told me that when the book came out, they had to create a new section in their bookstore for these books. And this is, I mean, it was fantastic for me to hear this. And with Undercats projects, I hope that we can create as many new sections in bookstores as possible to make sure not just that every child can see themselves in the books they read, but also that children that belong to the majority can understand from very early on that the world, that human beings come in all forms and shapes and colors, and that is part of the richness of the natural world. It's, it's not a drawback. It's actually added value. 
Wonderful. Francesca, thank you very much uh, for being with us today. Uh, congratulations mm -hmm. again for the success of the campaign, but also uh, a, a, a real uh, invitation for anyone following uh, uh, today that they still have uh, five days to take advantage of great offers, great packages, early birds, to grab all the four volumes uh, at a fantastic price and keep helping uh, you uh, in uh, uh, following through in your wonderful, radical, inclusive experimentation. Thank you very much, David. It was great to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much for following uh, Searching for the Question live. Uh, I hope uh, you enjoyed uh, uh, today's episode. Please uh, subscribe uh, our YouTube channel, uh, put a like on the Facebook page, uh, and uh, if you think this is valuable, uh, you can become a supporter, a sponsor, or benefactor on Patreon at uh, patreon.com uh, slash David Orban. See you at uh, the next episode of Searching for the Question Live.